Hi there and welcome to the second episode of the Beer Movie Podcast. My name is Tim from BeerMovie.net uh, and thanks for listening in. If you didn't listen to the first episode, this is a monthly chat between myself and someone from the film industry, uh, chatting about their work, uh, some interesting issues in the industry, and then jumping on into a discussion of the film of their choice. Today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Bryony Kidd. Um, thanks very much for coming on, Bryony. Thank you very much for having me, Tim. It's very exciting. Bryony is a film festival director, founder, and also a screenwriter, and writes a bit of theatre. That's right, isn't it, Brian? Uh, yes, that's right, and also director of films and producer of films, and uh, feature of screenwriting, uh, script editor, <laughs> trying to do anything else. That's pretty much it. That's a lot. That's awesome. So we'll start the conversation. I like to start these with just a slightly random question to lead us in. Uh, so probably many people listening to this saw and loved The Babadook last year, or this year, Jennifer Kent's Australian horror film. Where should people turn for their next fix of Australian female-driven yeah. horror? Um, well, I guess one of the best places might be to actually go through our film festivals so that they can just get news about that kind of stuff, um, yep. which is, uh, our festival is called Stranger With My Face Horror Film Festival. Um, and we have a website, which is strangersmyface.com, and we have a Facebook page and a Twitter, which sort of gets used a little bit. But um, So we try to sort of keep people up to date with that kind of stuff. Um, it's international as well. But um, I guess in terms of Australia, uh, a lot of my contacts and, I guess, peers are working on projects that I know about. They're not necessarily... Yeah. Um, announceable yet, but um, Isabel Papard, people might know more from her stop-motion animation work, but she's also um, moving into live action, and she's uh, very talented. Yep. She has uh, a project in development, which she's uh, the sole sort of creator of, called Silk, which I think will be really fantastic. Yeah, I think I've heard a little bit about that yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, she's just uh, announced that it's been selected for one of the sort of markets that's really important. I think it's uh, attached to... Uh, I've forgotten the name of it right now, but the the big genre festival in Korea. She's going oh, okay. there to fix that. Um, and Ursula Dabrowski, uh, who made uh, Inner Demon, uh, which came out, I guess, at the very end of the last year, um, and that's still still going around, and um, that's just been picked up for distribution um, by Dead House, which is Enzo Tedeschi's new new company, which is a really promising development. Yeah, they seem to be doing some really funky stuff. Um, and Enzo, for those who don't know, is the guy behind the tunnel, which was probably one of the first, I guess, crowdsourced films that, well, I ever saw. Yeah, anyway. yeah. I mean, he seems to have some really um, innovative ideas um, about distribution, I guess, because coming from that background of doing the tunnel and seeing how that all worked. Um, and, but he also has some really interesting creative ideas as well. So it's. Um, very exciting that there's sort of a new player um, on scene in that regard because uh, genre filmmaking is a pretty hard slog and particularly in Australia there haven't been a lot of avenues to really get your work out there. Do you think that's, um, I was going to say where something different but I'll go here, do you think uh, as a general trend that's improving or is it staying stagnant? Is it easier for I guess uh, a more diverse group of creators to get their work out there now or, or not really? Um, I think it's maybe getting a little bit easier, um, particularly internationally uh, in the American like indie genre scene. There's there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening at the moment. It seems like um, and there's some really interesting companies doing stuff. Um, so there seems to be an excitement and a sort of horror fans and the horror journalists and that whole community kind of looking for new work. Really care yeah. where it comes from. They don't care if it comes from Australia or you know, Timbuktu. It doesn't matter. So that's great in a way. Uh, I think maybe the Australian um, side of it is still trying to catch up a little bit because um, we're still attached to these sort of old funding models where you have to have a yes. you know, uh, theatrical release to get your budget in place and all this kind of stuff. And it's difficult to have yeah. a theatrical release if sort of a more niche film or genre film. Um, so, But I think it, it's all starting to change and hopefully – it will change quite quickly now because, I mean, there's that film, was it The Mule? Was that last year? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that was early this yeah, year. Yeah, and they, they did their sort of straight 
to straight to VOD release, which I think was really successful for them. So filmmakers are just sort of fed up with, you know, pouring their blood, sweat and tears into making amazing films and then them kind of being dumped out in a really haphazard way and failing at the box office. They're sort of taking control back and, and being a lot more proactive, yeah. which I think is really fantastic. Um, it's a bit scary as well, though, because, you know, not only do you have to now be a filmmaker, you have to know about publicity and you have to know about distribution and you have to know it all extremely well. Um, so it's quite daunting, but, um, you know, no one gets into this um, industry to make money or have a busy time, I guess. <laughs> and I mean... We really do need those funding models to catch up. You see films like 100 Bloody Acres and it doesn't do good business at the box office and people think, as a result, if it doesn't make money at the box office, it's an awful yeah. film. But, you know, that film got a huge amount of buzz online, overseas, but here there's still that very old-fashioned perspective. Yeah, and I think there is a cultural trend as well, which is almost a cliche to even say that anymore, but it's still there. Because something like 100 Bloody Acres I mean, if you have any kind of exposure to genre filmmaking internationally or, you know, say someone like me who's a festival programmer, so I watch quite a lot of stuff, you just know that quality films are not actually that common. Like, films that are entertaining mm-hmm. and well put together and have a point of view and, you know, even even that they make sense is kind of like, like a lot <laughs> of films don't even make sense. That's the basic level of storytelling and, you know, 50% of the films you see don't even reach that. You yeah. have something like Hunt Bloody Acres, and it's just good content. Like, it's just a good product. Um, but we sort of tend to be regarded here as like, oh, well, that flopped. I guess audiences are not interested in horror comedy or they're not interested in genre yeah. after all. And it's like, no, it's nothing to do with uh, audiences. It's just the, the structures that are in place. Um, and if you understood how rare a film like that is, you would be a bit more behind it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I because um, I'm not sort of advocating that we should say all Australian films are good, because that would be a really silly thing to do. But at the same time, when we have stuff that's good, we should get behind it and actually support it and do whatever we can to get it out there. And that, you know, day and date release on VOD is really sort of the bottom line that we need to get to. Yeah. Um, and, and we need... Uh, I. I think, unfortunately, uh, even though someone who's probably not as up to speed on it all as maybe you or other people, I think uh, funding structures are probably going to go backwards in the short term, but that's where we need to get to some relatively radical rethinking of how we fund films. Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, the problem with funding funding structures as well is there's just less money. Um, the government's cutting money from everything. Um, people are expected to make a film now for less than they were, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but everything costs more, so it's just a very, very hard climate to be trying to do anything in, but I think that's all the more reason why people need to be innovative and risk-taking um, and, you know, the, the funding structures need to think outside the square a little bit more. Um, let's jump into your the film festival that uh, I think you co-founded, yeah. correct? Stranger With My Face? Uh, tell everyone uh, what the basic idea behind the festival um, is. Yeah, we started it in 2012, um, and that was me and Rebecca Thompson, my uh, friend here in Tasmania. Uh, and it's, it's just started as a very small thing where um, we had a couple of short films ourselves that were sort of going around the horror festival circuit, and I, I found particularly that, that was a very supportive um, community to be part of, and I was very excited that people actually wanted to see my work, whereas... Uh, this is in America, actually. In, in Australia, people hadn't really been interested in what I was doing at all. So yeah. that was nice. Um, and then as part of that, the festival called the Visera Film Festival in LA, which was screening horror films by women, um, and they also were acting as distributors. So they will kind of put out um, their library of films or their sort of back catalogue, and then you could program your own selection of them and screen them somewhere. Okay. And they were sort of promoting the idea of doing that Save for Women in Horror Month, which is uh, every February. So that was all I wanted to do in the first year. I was just like, oh, well, let's have a Women in Horror Month event in order to screen a few short films. Um, but yes. it just quickly became bigger than that and we had all these different ideas and we wanted to have speakers and we wanted to have some feature films and um, lots of pictures sort of 
you came involved and let us screen a couple of their features. Um, so, you know, straight away in the first year it became this fully-fledged film festival, which was a bit freaky because we sort of hadn't really intended to do that. Um, and then we, we called it Strange With My Face because, um, well, I called it that because the sort of, <laughs> yeah, the sort of films that I'm interested in and I'm the programmer of the festival uh, is I, I particularly like the kind of horror that's about uh, the horror within, um, so like what you yourself could become or what you're capable of. Uh, I guess it's that kind of psychological idea. Uh, and yeah, so this novel by Lois Duncan, who's um, a very beloved sort of young young adult author from when I was growing up, um, and she wrote books like um, I Know What You Did Last Summer, yeah. uh, and yeah. But um, oh, summer of fear and different things like that. Um, and strange is my face was one that I was kind of obsessed with. So it sort of perfectly sums up what the festival is about. Um, so that's why we called it that. It's a really striking name. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've noticed that a lot of cool horror festivals had weird names. <laughs> so I didn't want to do something boring like Hobart Horror Film Festival. So yeah, it 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 sort of helps to get attention a bit as well, which is good. Uh, and like, give us a sense of, I guess, you know, I, I've done things on the fringe of film festivals and they quickly logistically get a bit out of hand. Give us a sense of some of the challenges that you guys face getting it up and running and then going for three, it's happened three times? Three, three times. Um, so the last one was uh, August 2014. Um, it will be returning, but we haven't announced the dates yet. So people are interested that probably should sign up to our mailing list or follow us on Twitter and you'll find out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, logistic-wise, logistic like, the first year we did, because we had no idea what we were getting into. It was like, <laughs> oh, let's just that a whirl. Um, and we pulled it all together in about six weeks and it was kind of huge and it surprisingly got a fair bit of attention. Um, That's an incredibly short time frame to put on a film. Yeah. I guess it helped in a way because no, no one was really expecting much particularly um, and it had that grassroots community sort of feel to it. Um, whereas in subsequent years, like particularly last year, I guess I felt the pressure a bit of trying to step up a level and then you want everything to be a bit better and a bit more professional and, and so then it becomes a different thing. Um, but, yeah, so logistically, um, the first year we didn't have any funding Except we did a sponsorship. Um, and the second year, we had a little bit of funding from Screen Tasmania um, and Events Tasmania, and the same for the third year. So, still not enough to really budget the whole thing properly, but um, enough to make uh, things feasible and do things like have international guests and have interstate guests. And uh, But, you know, you can pay for some things and not pay for other things and all that all that kind of compromise that you have to go through. Um, but we try to make it, um, I guess, just a nice festival for filmmakers to come to. Uh, so, you know, they're not necessarily going to make money out of it, but they get to come down to Hobart for a weekend and hang out with a whole lot of cool people who are interested in the same stuff they're interested in and, um, you know, just have a good time. So it, I guess it's a... It's a filmmaker-focused festival in that sense. It's kind of about their experience as much as it is about the audience experience. I think that, um, especially with short film festivals and perhaps smaller film festivals, that filmmaker focus seems to be a real key to longevity. You get people wanting to come back and submitting their films, and they, uh, even for audience members without a film, uh, they seem to have a really good vibe around them. Yeah, um, I think so, and it. it sort of taps you into the actual industry. Um, I mean, there are festivals that are good that are not, that don't involve filmmakers, but that's it's just such a different kind of thing to me. It's it's sort of almost like a discussion group about film or, whereas if you have filmmakers there, it becomes about um, that energy between the audience and the filmmaker and, and really importantly too, like between filmmakers with each other um, because it's such an isolating business a lot of the time, like, you're off making these crazy projects by yourself um, and then you actually come and get to sit in a room with other people and sort of feedback from that energy and share ideas and, yeah, that does create a longevity because people want to keep having that experience. Um, and I think 
there's been quite a few collaborations that have started out of our festival of people, you know, chatting over drinks afterwards or just meeting each other and then wanting to work together. So that's been really great for us because that, that means that we're kind of on the right track and we're doing something worthwhile, I guess. Yeah, that's very cool that, that people are meeting up and uh, hatching new projects yeah. together. Tell us about some of the guests you've had. I, I've never been there, unfortunately, but I noticed you got uh, you had Jennifer Lynch and Penny Wozniak for Despite the Gods, which is a film I really love yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, we had Jennifer Lynch and, and Penny, and we screened Despite the Gods, which is the um, the, the sort of behind the scenes documentary about Jennifer Lynch making a film in India, which is uh, called Hiss, and it's one of those filmmaking disaster stories where it was all just horrible and went terribly wrong. Um, so we screened that, which was great, but we also, um, this was uh, the year before last, uh, we also screened some of Jennifer's other films, so it was sort of like a bit of a Jennifer Lynch special with the festival that year. We screened Chained and Surveillance, um, and then she sort of talked at a few different points through the festival, and she was just a great guest to have because she's incredibly honest um, and generous, so she's kind of... Uh, you know, because she made her first film when she was really young, which was Boxing Helena, and that was very difficult. And then she didn't make any more films for 15 years. And so she's sort of been through it all, and now she's back on top again and going really well and directing The Walking Dead and stuff like that. Um, but she doesn't have any of that cool shit uh, anymore because she's kind of like, well, I know how hard it is. I know how you turn against you, and there's no point sort of being coy about it. <laughs> um, so she was a perfect guest for us because we have, you know, a lot of filmmakers who are uh, not necessarily young women, but women who are sort of at the start of their careers. Because I don't know if I actually said, but we we do pretty much only screen uh, female directed films. Um, so we're focused on trying to give women opportunities in the film industry, um, and they need to hear from sort of people who've been through it and to hear, I guess, how to navigate some of the power structures and how to keep going and all of that really difficult stuff um and then last year our guest uh our featured guest filmmaker i don't know we had two last year one was mashi go um who's from lao and she's lao's first um director first female director first horror director first feature film director um so she's great um she came over to talk about her feature film which we screened called chantali the lao ghost story um, and then lastly, we also had um, the Australian filmmaker Anne Turner who screened her film Celia as the opening night film. Uh, and that's, I don't know if you've seen Celia? Uh, no, I haven't, unfortunately. Yeah, okay. I mean, I would almost have liked to have chosen that film to talk about today because I just think everyone should see it. But uh, it's a kind of an underrated film, um, Australian film from the, is it the late 80s or the early 90s? But um, it's... Uh, strange film because it's not really a horror film uh it's sort of a drama but it's a period piece and it's a cult film basically i guess you'd say um and ann turner is one of those directors who kind of she made that film a lot of people sort of rave about um and has been very very influential but then she went on to make one or two more films um she made irresistible with uh susan sarandon uh and you know, and then now she doesn't make films at all. She's a novelist now, so that's a different perspective. It's like, well, she had her shot in the film industry and she made some great stuff, but now she's over it. So, so that it's not inspiring in the same way. But um, I was just really, really excited to have the chance to kind of highlight that film because I think it's really underrated. Um, and we had Rebecca Smart down as well, who's the star of that. She's fantastic. Like, she's just a great funny person and good value to have around um and that film also has like really interesting sort of practical effects and has sort of these monster characters in it um and it has a really interesting score that sort of uh i was actually talking to the composer about it for an article and it was sort of inspired by suspiria um you know, that kind of stuff so it has all these connections to genre filmmaking uh but it's not a horror film so that's one great thing about running a small festival where I'm the programmer, I can kind of just um, do what I want. Something that's not a horror film, I want, and uh, everyone else can just sort of figure out why that is 
relevant. Do you have any sort of rules or, or tenets that govern the programming approach, or is it basically just uh, do what I want? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is basically do what I want, but um, we have a short film component to it, uh, which is really important, obviously, to give people that opportunity to have their work um, seen. And increasingly, I'm trying to make that as sort of prestigious as I can because I think that's really important. Um, so we screen uh, like last year we had an international short program and an Australian shorts program, and they were quite short. Like there was only probably I think four films in each category. So it's kind of saying you know you got into this, you're pretty darn good. Um, and and I think as a film programmer, I see so much good stuff that is unappreciated. Um, so that's one of the main motivations for doing the festival is to just make sure that things are being highlighted that deserve to be highlighted. Um, I mean, we also screen films that have done really well in other festivals. Like we had uh, Victoria Payne's short film last year, um, Kingdom of Doug. I think that won a filter. So, you know, that was not unappreciated. But then we have other films that are sort of equally good that may not have screened in any other festivals at all in Australia. So that's really important to do that, um, to just literally um, try to find the best stuff. Um, so we have a, a commission policy, but I also sort of go from word of mouth and try to chase up things and um, hassle filmmakers if necessary if they haven't <laughs> submitted. Um so that's with the shorts. Um, with the features, I guess, there's a kind of idea emerging of having a retrospective film each year. Um, we only did that, we've only really started to do that like last year. Oh, actually, no, because we had Jennifer Lynch's retrospective. So I guess we have been doing that all along um, to kind of highlight something that's maybe either gone under the radar or, you know, the new generation just hasn't caught up with it yet for whatever reason. Um, and then at the same time, we want to, highlight some of the most interesting sort of contemporary stuff that's happening. Um, and last year we had four or five, I think five feature films that were all quite low budget, quite edgy, quite dark films that was sort of quite political. So like there's one called Evangeline from Canada, directed by Karen Lamb, and it's a horror film obviously and it's about a sort of an avenging evil evil spirit character but it's based around her observations of this particular highway in near Vancouver where you know a lot of women have disappeared and been murdered so she's sort of using real life events to create um, horror or a fantasy story and a lot of the films that we had last year were sort of doing that in different ways um, so we had a film called Kept which is by Maki Mizui, who's a Japanese filmmaker. And it's her debut feature. She's an actress and a screenwriter. And she based that story on having been kidnapped herself. Yeah, so she's kidnapped by this guy and um, I think released, and then he later went on to sort of rape and kidnap other women. Oh, that's horrifying. Yeah, so the film is kind of coming from that direct perspective which is really really fascinating um and the character in the film is quite sort of similar to that and just goes through all this guilt because in the, in the film she doesn't report the the kidnapping and so then other people are sort of taken by him and then she has all this horrible guilt about it and then this sort of fantasy element comes in where she's in the forest and there's a man with a wolf's uh, not a wolf's head an owl's head um it becomes quite sort of Guillermo del Toro sort of territory. So, yeah, I mean, I guess last year we had this kind of stuff that might fit into what some people call female response horror. So it's kind of um, using horror to address really personal issues in quite a direct way, um, which I think is really interesting, but we might lighten things up a bit next year. Yeah, that all sounded pretty dark, but um, it's definitely someone for me to seek out. Like broadening it out to more of a general discussion around uh, horror and um, horror and women, I guess. In terms of stories told, and I know this is a massive subject, do you think there's something slightly fundamentally feminist about much of the genre? I mean, to me, it sort of places women at the center of the story uh, more often than other genres, though I guess they're 
to counter that, they're also often being traumatized, both physically and mentally. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, uh, I have a friend, Lee Gambin, who's the um, you know film critic and organizes film screenings and events in Melbourne, and he's always saying, "Oh, it's the most feminist genre because you know there's women. It's all about women." And I get that to some extent, and I I agree with him. But I also think, um, yeah, there's a lot that's exploitative of women. That's yeah. There's nothing feminist about that from my perspective. But it's an interesting thing, like even the films where women women were there to be exploited or to be titillating or whatever. Um, often the sort of I guess maybe the energy of the actresses or the writers or something kind of subverts that. So it's a little bit like, you know, in film history, um, for example, the representation of gay people. Like, often they're represented really awfully. Like, in, you know, old films you see, like, a a camp sort of character or something who turns out to be a murderer. And, you know, they're basically saying, this is a perverted individual, you know, a murderer. But there's something about the way the actor plays it and there's something about the production it makes you interested in that person and so it kind of subverts that idea a little bit and it's almost like well also at least they're on screen so they're playing a murderer but at least they're there at least they're existing yeah. um so i guess there's a little bit of the same thing to me with horror and feminism where um there's a whole lot of films that are not feminist in in any sense and didn't intend to be feminist but sometimes um just in spite of themselves because they're putting women on screen, they allow the female characters to kind of transcend that and become bigger and become stronger than, I don't know. I guess that's sort of the screen queen phenomenon because, um, you know, a lot of those characters on paper are not empowering at all, Um, but the women who play them bring something to them and then people love what those women are doing on screen. So... Yeah, definitely. And I guess that whole final girl uh, plot structure as well, where I guess you can paint it in a more feminist or positive way and that the girl survives or she you know, kills Freddy or Jason, whoever it, whoever it might be. But also women are being killed and brutalised and you know, sex is being suppressed, etc. for the first you know, 80 to 90 minutes yeah. of the film. I mean, the final girl is interesting because I suppose often that is a bit more of a feminist trope. Like, deliberately saying, you know, there's something about women that's stronger or has that survivor capacity or, or I don't know. But within that, um, you know, they can start off sort of feel, feeling like quite an empowering story but end up, you know, you're just watching women scream and be tortured a whole lot. And yeah. So, yeah, it's a really strange thing where maybe the intention and the outcome are not always really matched up. Um but yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of all kinds of films that are probably dodgy from their their um, gender politics uh, perspective. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of like Italian giallo films and Dario Argento and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of them, you know, if you watch that too critically, you'd probably be like, well, maybe I should be watching this because I don't know quite what he's saying here. I mean, he he he's an interesting one because he he does use um, gay male characters, and he obviously is interested in gender in quite a complex way. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I think the the line usually has to do with sexual violence. I yeah, watch a lot of violent stuff, but there's something about combining um, rape and violence that I think often just goes over the line. And it becomes something I don't want to watch anymore. Um, not because I can't hack it or whatever. I just don't want to condone it or be part of it, I guess. And it seems to be so often just a cheap way to, I guess, horrify. Yeah. And it, I mean, unfortunately, you know, it invokes probably real world experiences or feelings for most people, unfortunately. It's just so prevalent and it, it's rarely treated, I think, in an intelligent uh, or incis- incisive yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I about this on Twitter earlier, just talking about the Game of Thrones situation versus um, that show Outlander, which has some sexual violence in recent episodes. 
which I haven't caught up with, so I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. I haven't watched the second half of the season. But um, it's uh, someone was saying, uh, you know, in response to George R. R. Martin, you can do whatever you want. Like, no one's going to stop you. But if you're using those kind of um, techniques to shock, maybe you then need to be more responsible for what you're evoking in people. And maybe, I mean, yeah. I read that as sort of saying, well, you need to have a point. Um so, I mean, a lot of the films that I was talking about before, like the ones that we screened at the festival last year, there was rape in, you know, a number of those films, like particularly in Kept was one of the most disturbing rape scenes I've ever seen. Like, it was horrible. Um, but that film was very specifically trying to explain how that character felt and, like, what she'd been through and what it resulted in for her. Um, so I guess maybe it is the intention and the perspective and if you're just using it literally as a plot device, um, it does seem a bit cheap and a bit easy. Anyway, we're, we're off track. I don't have all films about race in the festival. We we have uh, some hilarious films about monsters and stuff like that. <laughs> that's good. What uh, name a, a what's your favorite hilarious film about a monster? <laughs> oh no, that's tricky. Um, actually, my it's not hilarious, but one of my favorite monster films is Candyman. I haven't yeah, seen that. Do that. There's no race in that either, which is okay. Yeah. I have heard of it though. You should definitely see that. It's it's. Uh, I suppose there's a lot of sort of phallic symbolism though, because Candyman has this big hook hand, and it yeah, it's a bit creepy on that level. But okay, I can handle that. Yeah, it's not hilarious though. Sorry, I'm not really tuned into thinking about comedy and light-hearted stuff. I'm trying. That's fine. I mean, I think hilarious and monsters or horror comedies is one of the hardest genres to, to pull off, yeah. I think. It's so rare for a film to work on, on both those levels. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that a bit myself because I'm, you know, obviously a writer and filmmaker, and I was working on something that I wanted to be horror comedy, but I was kind of like, how do you actually do horror comedy? Because, you know, it's got to be scary, but how is it going to be funny? And one of the best bits of advice I got was that, um, actually from Brian Usner, who I met a couple of times, um, uh, who's the uh, writer-director, like reanimator in society and, you know, legendary producer. And uh, he said something like, play it straight. Like, you've got to commit to it. Yeah. Um, Don't don't make it funny um, deliberately. (laughs) So, in other words, like, not um, make a bad thing, then it'll be funny, but like commit to what you're doing. Um, yeah. Because if you're not committing to it and it's sort of you're going through this kind of camp effect, I think that's where you end up with something quite annoying. Yes. And it's, it's, sorry, it's very hard to maintain the horror side of things when you're going for that approach as well. You have to play it straight to get the horror. And yeah. Then... The ideas are so big and crazy, it'll probably be a bit funny anyway, because so much yeah. craziness happening. I don't know, I'm not sure if that's how they did like Evil Dead or something like that, but I almost think that that makes sense. It's just like, let's just go for this. It's going to be a bit wacky, but... Yeah. The the absurdity gets it over the line in terms of comedy, yeah. I think, in a lot of those films. Let's talk about your writing. Um, has, I guess, so you write for... I guess, the screen and for the theatre. Has that always been a natural way of storytelling for you? No, because I find it very, very difficult. But I think all writers would say that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I went to film school at quite a young age. I went to VCA to learn how to be a writer-director, which is the model that they kind of push there. Um, But the writing side has always been more where I'm comfortable, I guess, because I'm more interested in ideas. Um, the ideas kind of come first. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I love writing, but I find it it's difficult if you don't have clear deadlines and you don't have people pushing you along. Uh, and I guess that's the same for anyone working in creative industries, but, like, if you're working independently, I mean, uh, to just have the confidence in something to keep going with it long enough to finish it is probably the number one issue. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, like I have had some opportunities and had some funding and have projects that have that momentum now, which is really good. But I still have a few of my sort of most precious 
projects that I really, really want to do, um, but they don't have a producer attached to them, so there's no timeline, so there's no kind of momentum. Uh, so I do find that pretty hard, but you just have to force yourself to keep going back to them, I guess, and just try to believe that there's something there that has to be expressed and, you know, re- released into the world. And is that in a, do you take a very sort of black and white approach to that? Do you sort of sit yourself down and force yourself to write? Because I, like, if I didn't have a deadline to work through, I would be totally useless and I would just let it sort of sit there. Untouched. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm the same. Like, I think I kind of create, try to create my own deadlines sometimes. Like, um, I'm going to enter blah, 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 skip competition or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sometimes that doesn't work. Um, I have a writing group, that's good, because we meet once a month, and so if you don't bring anything for ages, you start to feel a little bit like a loser. <laughs> that's kind of good. Or you can sort of say to the writing group, like, I'm going to show you all this new draft, blah, 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 it's going to be amazing, and then you kind of feel like you have to actually do it. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, all these constant little tricks to try and make yourself um, But, yeah, I mean, I've found that like writing short film scripts or um, this theatre project that I'm doing at the moment, which is writing short, um, well, not, not that short, but they're half hour horror radio plays. Um, yeah, awesome. I mean, I find that sort of stuff is really good because if something's short, um, you take a bit of the pressure off yourself. You're kind of like, well, I'll just have a crack at this. I've got an idea. Whereas if you're writing features, there's so much pressure there because you're yeah. like, it's got yeah. to be amazing or I'm not going to get anywhere ever and, you know, it's got to be the best screenplay they've ever made, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that's really dangerous and you've just got to get yourself out of that mindset somehow. Um, I mean, I was listening to your podcast, um, your last one with Paul Anthony Nelson yeah. talking about Ed Wood. I, I, I really related to what Paul was saying about um, Ed Wood being a bit of a fantasy to filmmakers. Um, because yeah. he's just sort of churning out rubbish. Um, <laughs> um, not that he wanted to churn out rubbish, but like the churning out part is such a fantasy. Like to actually be able to get stuff made and get it out there. Um, particularly in Australia, I think we have this real problem. Well, there's so few opportunities, but there's so much pressure on making such a film. Like you can finally make one. You've probably been working on the script for like t- ten years. And, I mean, who's going to really be that excited about their scripts after that amount of time? It's just sort of stultifying. And then you finally get that one out, and then it's like slog starts on the next one. um, You sort of long for that Roger Corman kind of idea of just like, oh, I've got a crazy idea, let's make a film. And then you just make one, and then the next month you make another one. So, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, I mean, people like Corman and Edward, they really are. Bel- I love Roger Corman's films. You know, I have you know, shitty box sets everywhere of his his awful films, and uh, th- those guys they're just so beloved by people, you know, who are into highbrow film or people who are filmmakers themselves. Yeah, and I think it's just that I don't know something about the freedom of it that creates a different feeling or a different kind of yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm trying to do something like that with the Radio Gothic project. Um, it's me and a couple of other playwrights and um, a sound designer composer, um, Pete Brown, that I've worked with before. And and so we're all kind of... Um, i let my dog out. Don't worry, I keep talking at the same time. That's no worries. sound is. Yeah, so... Um, Yeah, and that just even that slightly different form, it's well, from 
not having to work on it, it seems like a really fun project and just something a little left of center. Yeah, and I think that's what I like about genre too is like you kind of if you say it's horror, it's a radio play and it has to sort of meet some classic horror parameters, but um, it's sort of giving yourself those limitations, I guess, can actually be really, really good because uh, if you're stuck by yourself all the time, it's like I can write or make any anything in the world. Um, it's just paralyzing because you don't know what to yeah. do and feel like it has to be genius. And um, that's if you can hear that weird noise in the background, that's my dog getting onto her beanbag now. So nice. <laughs> She's trying to get comfortable. Um, anyway, yeah. So like um, limitations are good, and and we did we did something like that with the with our film festival as well, actually, where we have a short horror script competition, um, which we'll probably come back later this year as well. Um, and that was to just, uh, you had to write a short horror script in 48 hours and you had a prompt. So it's kind of doing that thing again, just getting you out of your head and um, reminding you why you actually want to be a writer or a filmmaker, which is um, sort of about ideas and having fun, not driving yourself insane. Um, what about, uh, in terms of writing, uh, for film versus writing for the theatre, writing for radio plays, is there a fundamental difference there, or is it a good story, a good story you can sort of slot it in anywhere? Yeah, I'd be more in the camp that it's about the story first, um, and a good story is a good story, and then, yeah, you have to work out what is this medium, like, obviously with a radio play, how am I going to get across these ideas um, through oral means only? Um, but, you know, that just becomes a good exercise as well. That becomes interesting to try and do that. So um, and we've really enjoyed mucking around with conventions of, you know, how do you use Foley and what can we do with Foley sound effects that is not the traditional way of doing it that might be more of an experimental way or a horror way. Or, um, so, yeah, the... The sort of craft aspects, I think, uh, are secondary, and the, the story is always the first thing. All right, let's jump into uh, the film you chose for us to chat about in depth. Uh, when I first got in touch, you, you mentioned wanting to pick something obscure, and this was, well, I guess I sort of helped choose it, because this was the only one I could track down. Which one was it? Uh, Grace of My Heart, the Alison Anders film. And for those uh, ignorant people amongst us like me, uh, tell us a little bit about Alison Andes. Uh, well, she's an American indie filmmaker, and I guess she's sort of first well-known for the film that she made. Uh, when was it? Uh, it was called Gas Food Lodging, uh, and that came out. I'm just quickly looking it up as I'm speaking. Um, 90, 80s, actually. Yeah. Um, so she... That was one of her first films, uh, and then she sort of she's made quite a few features actually, but none of them really. Actually, sorry, Gaspard Lodging was '92, and that went really well. Like that was her sort of breakout one, and then she had one called Mi Vida Loca, which was about girl gangs in um, sort of Hispanic neighborhood in Los Angeles. So she had this sort of reputation for making quite gritty, low budget films about women, because Gaspard Lodging was a real sort of indie darling with sort of young women in a small town and uh, at a truck stop, actually. Um, so she's making these kind of films about working-class women, uh, which are quite sort of not exactly gritty, but realistic, I guess. Um, and then she made um, Grace of My Heart in 1996, which is sort of uh, on the surface appears to be the opposite of that. It's a very big kind of film. It's quite a glossy period piece. Um, it's sort of a sweeping saga and, you know, the executive producer was Martin Scorsese, so it's kind of a big deal and it's kind of, yeah, it's, it feels like the opposite to that in a lot of ways. But I think once you watch it and think about it, you realise that it fits into that trajectory of what she's been about all along, which is kind of exploring the lives of women in quite a um, complex, nuanced way. Absolutely, because, I mean, not only is it rare to unfortunately have a female protagonist, but I, I can't recall a film that has, I guess, as epic an arc about one woman, you know, it takes place over, I guess, like 10, 15, 20 years, and the film is just totally focused on this, this main female character. Yeah, I think that's what probably sort of 
revolutionary about it. And it's really interesting. Um, I mean, we should talk about the plot, I guess, before we talk about it too much. But yeah, so it's like a story of a of a young woman who is like a rich young woman in Philadelphia, and it's in the sixties, and she wants to be a singer, and she enters this competition, and she's supposed to sing this really old fashioned song that her mother wants her to sing. And then she's like, no, I want to sing something cool. So she sings a different kind of song and it just follows her whole career from, you know, going to the Brill Building and uh, moving to New York and becoming a songwriter at the Brill Building and them telling her that she has to change her name because she was originally called Edna Buxton and they make her change her name to Denise Waverly. Um, And then her whole trajectory through being a songwriter and writing songs for all these different people and, um, eventually coming right back around at the end of the film to, you know, achieving her dream of being a singer-songwriter and being herself and expressing herself through her music. Um, and it's very loosely based on Carol King's career, so it, it follows a lot of the same um, phases that Carol King had in her career. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I think there is something really revolutionary about it that it does follow this woman's life and puts it centre stage as if it, deserves to be there and it's like yeah this is interesting like this is about a woman's career of course it's interesting but yeah you're very hard pressed to find any other films that actually do that yeah and and the male characters broadly speaking in the film they worship this woman pretty much solely for her talent like you know uh john Turturro plays the record store uh, uh sorry the record label owner and uh, towards the end of the film, he just says, "You made me," and he repeats that over and over. Like you know, everything, the success he built, it's all down to her talent. And sort of her, her a couple of her uh, husbands in the film say the exact same thing. Yeah, as well. it is really interesting because um, yeah, it's almost like yeah, she's an attractive woman, like she's played by Ileana Ileana Douglas, who's a very beautiful woman, but um, perhaps maybe not in a totally mainstream way. She's uh, not not a typical sort of beauty um that that usually gets the leading role in a film either actually um but yeah they don't talk about that they're not like oh you're too beautiful denise i'm crazy about you how beautiful you are (laughs) it's all about like oh you've got a really interesting mind like your music is fantastic what you're saying here is really interesting um and that's i mean it's such an interesting film on the level of gender politics the way the men all deal with her differently but the music kind of um, breaks through the bullshit in a way. It's like um, we're connecting as professionals now and although, you know, the character played by Eric, Eric Stoltz, who's her first husband in the film, she he, you know, turns out to be a bit of an asshole, um, personally speaking, but they have this really interesting professional collaboration and that sort of still stands, like whether or not their marriage works out doesn't doesn't sort of impact on the fact that they are collaborators and influence, influencing each other musically and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and sorry, he, he sort of brings in a lot of, um, I guess, the political side of things, and the film does touch on a lot of those, you know, gender, race, uh, class issues without ever feeling tokenistic about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting too, because although, as you say, like, it says that she's a talented songwriter and that's her sort of currency in life that people see she's not a perfect person she's also evolving so she starts off writing these kind of pop songs and being a bit frivolous and middle class and through Eric Stoltz's character he fancies himself as a revolutionary and so then she's sort of starting to think more about the social context that she's working in and you know she writes songs for this black all black girl group and tries to put reality into what she's writing for them and so it's about her political consciousness raising as well and evolving in terms of being an artist and what that means and um going through all these different phases and you know finally ending up in the carol king um tapestry phase where she puts out the album that is you know this is me this is my voice and exactly what i want to say but it's almost like um that totally unfettered sort of artistic expression is not even the most interesting part of the film because it's sort of negotiating all the other all the other scenes and all the other uh, ways of making music that is just as interesting um, so yeah I mean it's it's such a 
unusual film being about a woman's career, but also being about music and also being about creativity. Um, so I just think there's a lot in it, and, and that's why I guess it's one of those ones that I can rewatch almost, you know, forever because there's just so much in it. Yeah, definitely. And on that level of creativity, you know, we talked a bit earlier about uh, Paul's choice in the last podcast of Ed Wood. Is there anything here that speaks to you on some sort of level of, you know, that, that I don't want to say struggle, but that grind, I guess, of trying to get work out there and occasionally possibly having to compromise or find your own way? Is any of that reflected in the film? Oh, hugely, yeah. I mean, you know, on one level, that's what it is about as a film, is like the struggle of being an artist and what kind of sacrifices are required and what what it means to do that. I think it has a broader resonance too that's about career and about women having careers and all of that. But, I mean, I don't know because I'm coming at it from my perspective. Um, the, the stuff about being an artist I think is really interesting because it's kind of, um, well, it's showing it in a realistic way, um, which is not to say that, it's necessarily as hard in the film as it is in reality because this is also a musical, I guess, because, you know, you see her writing a song with someone and then someone performs the song. So it's an entertaining film and it's it's kind of a musical. But you see um, how hard it is to kind of come up with your persona even as an artist. Like, what is it that I'm trying to do? What is it that I'm trying to say? How do I want to present myself? Like, it doesn't just sort of, come out of them fully formed, like I'm this kind of person and I do this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so she kind of, in the film, goes through all these personas where she's like this kind of singer and then she's this kind of songwriter and then, you know, she's a hippie or she's a intellectual or whatever. So sort of trying on different personalities until she finally feels like she's hit on the right thing. Um, but then, you know, the great thing in the film is like this one moment where she has written this incredible song, um, God Give Me Strength, which is based on all of her suffering and, you know, romantic uh, disasters and things like that. And she pours it all out into this incredible song, which is um, a song that was written for the film by um, Elvis Costello and Bert Bacharach. So it's a pretty good song. Um, and then she sings it for um, Matt Dillon's character, playing this kind of... Uh, Brian Wilson sort of uh, pop maverick, I guess. <laughs> and he's um, just, you know, blown away by it. And it's this amazing thing that he sings it and he's just sort of looking at her with this frown on his face, like this creepy song, this woman singing, and, and then you know that he loves it and it's a great scene. And, and then that is a flop. Like that song in the story doesn't go anywhere, doesn't help her career. It's just an embarrassment. So it's that kind of thing that it's so hard to work out what you want to do. It's so hard to do it. It's so hard to, you know, get the skills to be able to do it well. And then even if everything falls into place, it still might be a flop. Um, Nobody else might get it. It might be the wrong time, the wrong place. Um, So, yeah, I think it has a huge amount to say um, about all that stuff. Yeah, so that that scene with um her singing the song to Matt Dillon, that that really stood out for me, and it's just sort of I've been thinking about this a lot. Strange comparison, but uh, you know, reading a lot of writing about Mad Max Fury Road and how George Miller is so good at sort of doing away with exposition and just telling everything through action. And I think the film sort of does a similar thing in obviously being a musical, a, a totally different way, and that that scene where she just. That, that scene tells you everything about the character that you need to know and everything about, I guess, uh, the start of whatever relationship her and that character yeah, is going to have. Yeah, it's true. And I, like, I think that's what musicals... I mean, you don't really think of this as a musical because they are always singing in a realistic way. Like, they don't break into song in the middle of the conversation. But I guess it is a musical and it uses the music to tell story on that level. And I think you're right, like, that is the reason that's such a good scene because it just tells you so much just from the way she performs it and the way he responds to it. Um, and, yeah, it was interesting because um, before I um, was speaking to you, I did a bit of research just to see how this film was reviewed when it came out. Um, and it, wasn't, it just doesn't seem like it was reviewed very well. Like, Roger Ebert didn't really 
like it and Janet Mazin in the New York Times was quite sort of dismissive about it. And one of her criticisms was, uh, yeah, it just has a structure to it where it's like they talk about something and then they write a song about it and then the song comes on and it's just really formulaic or something like that. I did not feel that at all. No, I didn't either. I thought that was a really strange way of looking at it. That's something I usually react to is like, uh, it's you know, it's time for a song. Let's let's plonk one here, and you know, yeah, we'll relate it to what we were just talking about. I don't feel well, that at all. It, it kind of maybe that it did have that structure to some extent, but it it's kind of like those songs are part of the story, so it didn't feel like stopping the story to have a song. It felt like what you were saying, like that is the story. So yeah, I didn't have that response to it at all. But I, I'm really fascinated by how dismissive people were about the film when it came out because um, it came out around the same time as um, Tom Hanks' film That Thing You Do, which was also about sort of cockiness in the 60s, I guess. So maybe that didn't help it was overshadowed by that or something. But it just seems like people didn't really get it. Yeah, and it seems like, looking back on it now, it's a really radical film. Like, you know, I... First thing it caught my eye was, you know, uh, executive producer Scorsese, and then I think it's Universal logos come up, and then from then on, it it just feels, it feels totally uh, outside that world. It feels a bit almost revolutionary, you know. It feels like there's, and it, so it should be, you know. There's, it's almost revolutionary. There's women characters everywhere, and you know, it, it's just so totally focused on that female character. Yeah. Maybe just people didn't know how to place it or something when it came out. Um, and also, I mean, it is a sort of an artificial song because it's about um, singing and uh, the songs are dubbed. So it's not like some of the stuff now where there's this you know, cool thing that people are doing now where actors all do their own singing. Um, she doesn't mm. do her own singing and you can sometimes kind of tell that she's not doing her own singing. But... It doesn't bother me because it's a very formal kind of film. Like it's a, it's almost an old-fashioned Hollywood film, and maybe that's why, maybe that's what people didn't like about it because it is a sort of old Hollywood feel to it almost. But then it's talking about something as trivial as a woman's career, and it's like, why do you deserve this treatment? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of a, they, they feel like it should be something bigger to deserve this kind of sweeping epic treatment. It's a really good point, actually. It's, it's a, a strange contrast there between this, like you say, old-fashioned, almost sweeping, epic style of old Hollywood filmmaking. And then you're right, it's about, you know, a woman's career. And I guess even just one person's story rather than the story of a great family or, or something like yeah, that. that's true. And, and I, I think that's why I like it so much, though. And it does go back to talking about Ed Wood in your last podcast, like, that's why that's such a great film as well to me is kind of picking up on these small small people's lives in a way. Um, not that Ed, you know, Edward was necessarily unknown, but he was just a hack filmmaker, really. And it's just picking up on that and saying, well, actually, this person's life is fascinating and it's worth looking at. Um, so something maybe politically kind of subversive just about that as a general idea. Yeah, and I think it is... a. I think in general it's a, a quite a, a subversive film. I just think even you know there's an abortion in the film, and it's not really a big plot point. It's just something that happens, and there's a very logical reason that it happens, and then the the plot moves on with its next point. And I think there's almost something quite subversive in, in just the way it treats things like that and racial diversity and uh, you know a, a lesbian. Yeah, couple. I think very much so, and I think it comes from the fact of Alison Anders being a woman writer-director and bringing her perspective to it. And so, you know, I don't want to say that, like, all men, if they had an abortion plot point in their story, would necessarily screw it up. But, like, you know... It's probably a fair assumption. But, you know, she's she's not doing it as melodrama. She's just trying to portray a realistic version of what a woman's life is like. So... That it all comes from the lens of, I guess, her experience and her beliefs, um, and that's you know why I'm always banging on about opportunities for women directors and we need more women making films because it is a director's medium for me, um, and you know in this case she wrote a script as well. But um, 
as a director, you get to sort of present your version of reality quite strongly. Um, and if that version of reality is always a male reality, um, that's where you do get a sort of a fake melodrama about various things that women go through because men don't understand those things. And the great, the really great thing about this film as well is that she has um, female friends in it. Um, she's not totally isolated. Um, this character, um, oh, Cheryl, um, who is kind of like a rival songwriter, and they're sort of set up as being rivals. Um, and she's played by Patsy Kensett, so she's sort of a glamorous English woman. Um, but as soon as um, two women realise they have a lot in common and they're sharing a lot of struggles, they quite quickly become friends and they're sort of each other's biggest supporters and talk to each other and help each other. And I think that's a much more realistic version of how women operate you know, in the career world or in the, in the arts than I've seen in most most films about this kind of subject because um, usually it's, uh, I guess, passion rivalry or fighting over a man or, <laughs> uh, you know, there can only be one woman so we have to tear each other down. That's exactly right, actually. There's only, there's only room for one female hero in any film and uh, I quite like that they, they bond over sort of mocking this typical man in the workplace, talking over them and, and telling them how to, to do their job properly in the recording studio yeah, one day. Yeah, that's some of my favourite stuff, is the two of them working together and sort of rolling their eyes at the other stuff that's going on. Really, I mean, you know, it, it, doesn't, it wouldn't mean so much to me if, if I'd seen that in a lot of other films, because I just haven't seen it. Um, and then another thing that I think is really beautiful in the film is the relationship um, between the main character and Joel, who's um, you know runs the record company and the manager, I think, and he he's kind of like her mentor, um, even though he's sort of doesn't have a clue about a lot of stuff, and he's a bit of a laughable figure, like he wears this really bad toupee and <laughs> and John. Hero plays so beautifully, like he's so good in it. Um, but the, you know, there's this amazing scene with the two of them where um, Denise is kind of just at the end of her rope, just like I've been through so much, I just can't handle anymore. Everything's too hard. And um, he just says something like, "I'm sick of seeing you, you know, take your talent for granted and let men boss you around, and just sick of seeing you be an idiot about it." stop it um and so he's this male you know kind of kind of clueless person in a way but they have this incredible relationship where it's like he's her biggest supporter um and that's really unusual to see in a film as well it's just like a a, a male mentor of a, of a woman so yeah there's all this kind of strange stuff going on yeah and you know, i think it it does sort of clearly come from you know, a female right director, which is all too rare, and yeah. I don't, I don't know how she got the freedom to make this under a pretty, what seems to be a pretty standard studio situation. Well, uh, two, two words, Martin Scorsese. Oh, so he did sort of champion the film. I saw his yeah. name on it, but that would make sense, He's I guess. Executive producer, but I think that he was quite hands on, and I have absolutely no doubt that he wouldn't have been able to get this made without him. Yeah, that makes so sense. So it's interesting what we were just talking about, like a man sort of mentoring a younger woman and kind of helping her um, up the ladder. And it's kind of, um, I mean, this is an extraordinary film too because I'm not sure what the budget is, but I'm sure it's nowhere near as big as it looks because it looks like a huge film and it has um, yeah. songs that were commissioned just for the film by all these amazing songwriters. It has an incredible cast, all these you know, different, like it has Bridget Fonda in it, Chris Isaacs, and all, all these cameo roles of like really great people. So, I don't know, the whole film seems kind of like a miracle that it happened at all, and then it kind of has sort of disappeared from co- consciousness a little bit, which I think is a big shame. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think someone like Scorsese has such a huge power to get something like this up, and I wish other people in this position kind of do a bit more of that. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's so important. Um, we'll finish on, I guess, so we've, and you especially have uh, relayed a lot of the unique um, 
triumphs of the film, I guess, to the viewpoint of the writer-director, Alison Andes. Are there uh, any other her, her films you'd recommend, or just a blanket recommendation for all of them? Uh, I just, maybe I just have to do a blanket recommendation for all of them. So I haven't, to be honest, I haven't watched all of them. Um, but what she's doing at the moment is directing TV, which is great that she's doing that, but that seems to happen, particularly with a lot of these uh, women auteurs. They kind of get the chance to do a couple of things, and then they're sort of, you know, got to pay the bills. And like, nothing wrong with doing mm. TV. Obviously, TV is amazing. And she's directed Orange Is the New Black and things like that, which I think are incredible. Um, but you know, I'd like to see her doing another feature where she brings her unique sort of perspective to the screen. Um, but you know, I sort of keep in touch with her a little because I follow her on Twitter. Um, and actually, um, they're doing a screening of Grace of My Heart at the Alamo Draft House in um, Denver in like a week from now uh, with a 35mm print and it seems like kind of a big deal. So maybe there is a, a renaissance happening with this film. I'm not really sure. Let's hope so. Cause it is, I, I, I was really blown away by it. Actually, I was one of those delightful things where you, see, you go in pretty blind. Uh, I tried not to look into it too much um, and it was really taken by surprise because unfortunately it's such a unique vision that we don't see enough of. Yeah, I think so. And it's 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 funny as well. Like it it sort of sounds like what we've been talking about that it like it's a really serious film, but it's actually just kind of light and has a lot of comedy in it and And great songs. Really great, great songs. songs. Yeah. I mean amazingly amazing that they got all those songs together. But um yeah, so I I, I could keep talking about how good it is, but I think people get the idea by this point um but yeah i mean i'd like to see more films um about women and about their careers and about i guess creativity because i think i mean going back again to what we were talking about in the last podcast like i think that does lead to really interesting stories and it, it's sort of not done as much as it should be either because there's always this focus on um i don't know romance and melodrama and kind of, like this film is very melodramatic, but it's there's melodrama of ideas as well. Mm. So, yeah, I'd like to see more about creative people and the sort of, a sort of a true representation of of their lives rather than just the sort of cheap cheap tatty version where you know there's two divorces and an alcohol problem or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, so it's a basically a big go and see it if you haven't because it is something we need more of. Um... And unfortunately, nothing's really getting made like this, uh, at least on this scale. Um, so seek it out, and I suspect you'll be very much impressed. Uh, Bryony, where can people keep up with the film festival and with you personally? You always share a lot of good stuff that I read on Twitter, so give out your yeah, details. Um, probably Twitter is the easiest one. It's just at Bryony Kid um, on Twitter. And then the film festival, there's a website, um, www.strangewithmyface.com. And you can sign up for the mailing list so when we eventually announce something, <laughs> you'll hear about it. Um, yeah, I don't have a personal website at the moment because I let it um, lapse because I didn't, I'm not sure if I liked it and now I have to rebuild the whole website off doing it. <laughs> but I will do it one day. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, Twitter is probably the, the best bet. Um, and uh, I'll announce when I've rebuilt an amazing website. Uh, we'll share that out when it comes. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a really good chat. It was great to have you. Oh, thanks a lot, Tim. It was really fun. Uh, and I'm Tim from bmovie.net. Uh, you can check out all my reviews there, and it's got links to all my Twitter and Facebook, etc. Thanks for listening in, and we'll catch you next month.